Welcome back. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're sure loving the fact that you're all coming and gathering with us and coming in to praise Jesus. And this morning we've kind of broken things down. We have two of our guys in the band, Jerry and Kevin, are moving this morning. Uh, Kevin's moving into his first house, so we're excited for him, but we miss them here this morning. And because we're trying to keep this as germ-free, uh, we've just broken it down to be real simple this morning. So we're going to sing some songs over you. We're going to teach you a new song. And we're going to worship Jesus together because he loves everything, even a clinging symbol, which could happen, but we hope that it doesn't. <laughs> so we're glad that you're here, and we just pray that you will join us this morning from the places that you're at with your families. And um, just enjoy Jesus this morning.
fear fills in life, no fear in death. There's Good one. Every time I tried to make it on my own, every time I tried to stand and start to fall, and all those lonely roads that I have traveled on, there was Jesus. When the life I built came crashing to the ground When the friends I had were nowhere to be found I couldn't see it then, but I can see it now There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing Every minute, every moment where I've been or where I'm going, even when I didn't know it or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. For this man in needs amazing kind of grace, for forgiveness at a price I couldn't pay. I'm not perfect, but I thank God every day. There was Jesus. In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing and the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces. Every minute, every moment is where I've been. On the mountains, in the valleys, there was Jesus in the shadows of the hours. There was Jesus in the fire and the flood. There was Jesus. 
we're reminded this morning that you are in and around and beside and before and behind. Father, that you can see and know each in our different places all around this globe that you are there. And we will admit often it we don't we can't tell. We don't feel like you're there. We don't feel like you're watching or listening or hearing or acting. And we're trusting, Father, that you are good today. We're trusting that your goodness is above all. And that goodness we realize is not maybe the American prosperity goodness that your goodness is way deeper and way higher and way smarter than our little wants and desires and in it all father we submit again to you that you are God and that we are not and that we want to be open to you trusting in you listening for you in all that comes our way And we just want to admit this morning that we're getting tired. We're tired. We ask that you continue to help us as a country, as a nation, uh, move and get started again. We pray for all those families right now hurting financially and relationally, and we've been together for so long, so close. Father, you know. And we just offer it again to you. We're doing our best most days. We all said, Amen. I want to do this next song. Um, it's a new song out by Carrie Job, if, if many of you may recognize her. But um, it's called The Blessing. And uh, it, it, it honestly comes from uh, Pastor Stearman and Pastor Brian have always ended their service with this blessing. And now we have a melody for it. But we're going to try to teach it to you a little bit this morning. See if you can catch on. And next week we'll, we'll really bust it out. <laughs> This is how it goes. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you 
again. something in a streaming world that you know we don't really do this but Mackenzie is here amongst us every week and Mackenzie will you come up we didn't plan this and hopefully she knows what she's doing but she's gonna sign and dance or do whatever she does let's do that again Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, and give peace. Amen.
I'm forgiven. And I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I am accepted. You Father God, we honor you with our lives, with our time, with all these weird days. We are trying to keep you as our king, as our focus, as our foundation. We look to you during these times. Thank you that we have a king like you. Amen. We want to encourage you now at this time. Um, just imagine the ushers coming forward and, and coming into your home. And uh, you can go on our website like many of you are doing and you can give there a WLC Church. Dot com. Is that right? WLCchurch.com. You can also, there's an app you can use to give. You can snail mail it, um, all those different things. We do appreciate that you have been faithful and continuing to give. You need to know that the church is, is helping some families uh, during this time, and we are, are thankful that even in the midst of these weird days, 
um, the church is still the church. And you are still reaching out to people on Zoom and phone and all these different ways to encourage them. So we thank you for that. And um, anything else? We've got a video now as we, uh, we play this before Pastor Tim comes. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath and how David went out to fight the giant Goliath because all the other soldiers were afraid of him? David was a shepherd boy with no training of war, and God called him to walk out with courage and take the giant down with one smooth stone and, a, and one slingshot. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4, after David had killed Goliath, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe and, that he was wearing, and he gave it to David. And even his belt and his sword and his bow. We learned from Pastor Tim's sermon last week that a covenant is a binding between God and us or between two people. We found out how men who make covenants with each other have make promises to each other, where they promise to help take care of each other and also protect one another. What I would love for you to do is to think about how do you feel connected to God? Have you accepted Jesus into your heart and asked for forgiveness for your sins? Right there, you are making a huge commitment, a huge covenant with him, being one with him. What I would like for you to do as a family is to think about different ways that you have felt connected to him in this time. You know, we've had some good downtime where we haven't had the hustle and bustle of going to school and different activities. There's probably been some really cool ways where you have felt connected not only as a family, but even more connection to God during this time. How has he been speaking to you? Has he been whispering to you in his ear? What have you learned from maybe the prayers that you've even prayed together as a family or individually? So go ahead and take that time right now, and we look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Bye. morning and welcome again to uh, Woodland Life Center. We're glad you're here today, at least uh, watching us in some particular place somewhere. And I'm glad I have opportunity to share with you again today. And because I think we're one of the few churches in the world that does this live, we really are here right now as you're watching. Most everyone else is taping it ahead of time and then playing something for you, but because we're live, if we mess up, you get to watch us, you get to see it. But um, I hope that these broadcasts or these streams are having an impact for the good, for those of you who watch. A couple of things I want to mention to you. One is that I hope you'll get your Bible, because today especially, there will be a lot of opportunity for you 
to use your Bible, to turn to your Bible, to mark in your Bible, because I want to tell you some things that I think will be new to many of you. The other thing I notice is that as I watch other people doing this streaming thing, not only do they tape it ahead of time and edit it, make it look real slick and all that, they've got all of, the, all of the kinds of gizmos and resources and all that. I've gone totally old school. I bring in a whiteboard and just write things on it for you. But uh, maybe old is becoming new again. I don't know. But anyway, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn again to Genesis chapter 15. And we're studying, we're talking about covenant. We talked about that last week. And specifically, the covenant we're talking about is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel through the person of Abraham. And last week, we started with, I started with telling you nine steps that are involved in the making of a blood covenant. Uh, Just as a matter of review now, for those of you who have forgotten or for those of you who weren't watching last week, let me just go through those first nine steps again that I gave you last week. When two people were going to make covenant with one another, they would meet in an open area, perhaps a field. Uh, They would have witnesses standing around watching or witnessing the event, the fact that they were going to make a covenant, they were going to make a deal, they were going to make an agreement between one another. And this agreement was very important. It was uh, very serious. It wasn't something to be taken lightly. And so in the process of doing that, these two individuals, and I'm going to say men because it probably was two men, they would begin by exchanging robes with one another. That was uh, indicating an exchange of identities. And then they would exchange belts with one another. That was to indicate an exchange of strengths. And then they would exchange weapons with one another. That was to signify the exchange of enemies. And then they would offer a sacrifice. And we read about this last week in chapter 15. And that sacrifice was when they would take a heifer, a cow, a a goat, and a ram, and they would split them right down the middle, cut them in half, pull those two halves, those carcass, halves of that carcass apart, and then they would take the walk of death. And the walk of death was when those two individuals making covenant would stand at either end of that line of animal carcasses, And they would walk through the middle where they had been pulled apart. They'd walk through the middle, and that was called the walk of death. And then we talked about the fact that item number six was the mark on the body. And I explained that last week as being like uh, in the old cowboy movies when uh, the Lone Ranger and Geronimo would become blood brothers. They would cut a little place on their wrist and touch their wrists to one another to mingle their blood. That's similar to what was happening here when two individuals made covenant. They would leave that mark on their body so that people would see that and know that they were in covenant with someone. The the seventh thing was when they would recite blessings and curses to one another. In other words, if you stay true to this covenant, these are the blessings that you will receive. But if you fail to keep covenant, These are the curses that will fall upon you. And they would recite those to one another. And then they would share the covenant meal. And that is the part of this that always kind of lights me up. Because they would sit there with people watching. And the covenant meal would be set before them. And they would begin by feeding each other 
the first few bites of that meal. And they're saying, basically by doing that, I literally ingest you. And that sounds a little bit like the sacrament of communion. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And then they came uh, to the exchange of names. And I explained that last week. Most of you know that Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. As God took part of his name in Hebrew, Yahweh, and inserted it into the middle of Abram's name, and God became known as the God of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to tell you yet what number 10 is. You'll have to come back next week to get that. But I want to take you on a little side trip. I'd like to show you some places in the Old Testament where covenant language is used and places where you've read the stories many times but you've never understood them the way I hope you will as you begin to get a greater grasp of the whole idea of covenant. And I think you will never read the Old Testament the same again because you will begin to see every book in the Old Testament, you'll begin to see covenant language is peppered throughout that particular book. Uh, there are a lot of examples, but one that I would share with you is found in Genesis 17. So, flip over a couple of chapters to 17. Now, what I'm going to discuss with you will make some of you a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Not as uncomfortable as if this place was filled with people. It makes me a little uncomfortable because I've not really talked about circumcision from the pulpit very much. I, I don't talk about it anywhere very much. But in Genesis chapter 17, if you have your Bible there before you, and you have a New International Version, what does it say above that chapter? What is the chapter heading? It says, the covenant of circumcision. Well, so we have to deal with that. You look at verse 1. It says, Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So we come to Genesis 17, and we talk again about what? The mark on the body. See if you begin to hear some covenant language as we talk about this passage of Scripture. It continues, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. So what it's telling us is this covenant was a multi-generational covenant. It was not just between God and Abraham. It would be a covenant that would last throughout generations to come. Now look at verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It's interesting that all of us might be a little uncomfortable dealing with this subject, but we're incredibly comfortable in American society talking about everything else under the world. 
And yet circumcision is extremely important in the Old Testament because it represented the covenant. Now, last week when I talked about the ten steps, I said that God in one form or another took all ten steps with Abraham. See, this was not just a covenant with a man. Like the two guys out in the field with the witnesses rubbing their bloody wrists together. This was a covenant with a nation that would continue on into the future. So covenants with men, that men made with each other, the mark on the body would still be the striking of the hands. But the covenant that God made with a nation through Abraham would be very different. So now circumcision would be the mark on the man's body that signified that he was in covenant with God. Now we saw the importance of the mark on the body there in step 6. But in this passage, circumcision represents the capacity to procreate. It is a multi-generational covenant. So circumcision became the sign that this covenant was from generation to generation. Now I'm guessing that it's hard for me to even speak about this in our enlightened day when women and men share everything and there's great partnership and equality. It's the way it should be. It was far too long in coming. But it's difficult for us to look back at Old Testament times and try to figure out why it was more important for the man to carry the mark of covenant than for the woman. And, and I can't explain that in any way other than the fact that in Hebrew culture the importance of the man was seen as so much greater. And and in many Middle Eastern societies, it's still that way. But in Old Testament times, children were the greatest asset that a man could have. If he had children, he was considered blessed. So he, God, was saying not only to Abraham, but to all of his descendants who follow him, you and I are in covenant. And whatever you have, including your children, whatever you have is mine. Genesis 17 is filled with covenant language. And I'm guessing that somewhere out there, someone is saying, but pastor, I haven't been circumcised. Or, but pastor, I'm a woman. How in the world does this relate to me? You go in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and it speaks of the fact that in Him, meaning Jesus, in Him, this is what it says, you were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ or the circumcision of the heart. You are in covenant. You carry the mark of covenant on your heart. Let's move Now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we come to that wonderful story that we love to learn as children about David and Goliath. And we see the test of the covenant here. And it's another example of covenant language. It it picks up with the example that we've just been talking about. And yet we read over it all the time and we don't understand the covenant significance of what's happening here. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 3, It says, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another and the valley between them. 
a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of a Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. So here's Goliath. Nine feet tall. I'm six foot two. Think of (laughs) three more feet on top of me. And David was a kid who cared for his father's sheep. Now, he wasn't six years old. It wasn't eight years old. He was probably 10, 12, 14. I don't know. And he just arrived here at the scene of the battle because his father had sent him out to the battle site with some snacks for his brothers. In those days when they were at war, it was often the responsibility of family back home to send food out to their soldiers. And it's hard for us to understand that during David's time, warfare was a little bit more civilized perhaps than it is today. They would do battle maybe from like 9 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon, then return to the camp, sit around the fire and sing Kumbaya. I mean, it was kind of like that. So they're back in the camp. And David brings this food. And he finds this group of men standing around commiserating about their plight and talking about how in the world can any of us go up against him. We can't take on Goliath. There's no one among us who can take on this giant. You see, I guess the, the idea was we'll each just send out one soldier and whoever wins, wins the battle and we don't have to kill a lot of other people. And it's at this point that David speaks, speaks up and in essence he says... What will you do for me if I go get this guy? Now look down at verse 26, 1 Samuel 17, 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, what we normally think of when we think of circumcision in relationship to Israel, we just think of it as being part of their national tradition. Oh, it was more than that. You see, you just read, when you read that passage, you just read covenant language that you didn't know was there. When David mentioned circumcision, he's not talking about anatomy. He's talking about covenant. And what he's really saying is something like this. Who is this nine-foot-tall, out-of-covenant person that he should come and mess with us? doesn't make any difference if he's nine feet tall and I'm a short little shepherd boy. He's out of covenant, and my covenant partner is God. Let's go. My covenant partner is God. He's talking about exchange of robes, exchange of belts, exchange of weapons. So that whoever his enemy might be is in essence God's enemy. We come to verse 33. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. Why, you're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. In other words, he's saying to David, what do you know about fighting a war? kid. But David knows his covenant theology. And he says in verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Who had Goliath taunted? He was taunting the covenant 
partners of Almighty God. We come to verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So then Saul says, okay, go ahead. Do it. And he offers to let David wear his armor. And David tries it on. This isn't a little covenant-making ceremony between the two of them where they're exchanging robes and belts and weapons. That's not what's happening. Saul's sword is so big that it stakes David to the ground, causing him to sort of spin in a circle. And the Scripture says he tried in vain to walk. So here's David with a sword too big to carry. And the imagery reminds me of the church today. Let me meddle a little bit. You see, we act like Saul in the church. We sing songs with great bravado, like we are an incredibly brave army of God. Covenant people. When I was a boy growing up, we used to occasionally sing Onward Christian Soldiers. You remember? In one place in it, it says, His oath, His covenant in His blood surrounds me in the whelming flood. And we sing like God's mighty army. And then we load ourselves up with all kinds of weapons that are our own. Programs and productions and promotions and all those kinds of things instead of prayer and power and praise and purity. We're always looking for a magic bullet. And without knowing it, we're, we're doing it here at WLC today. We're looking for a preacher. Oh, he better have all the gifts. He better be able to preach like a bishop. He better be able to raise money. He better be able to draw people in. And we keep looking at resumes instead of at spirits. We're so busy strapping on someone else's weapons that we forget we are indeed covenant partners with God and His weapons are our weapons. In our human ingenuity, we sometimes, to, we sometimes believe that by sheer, the sheer force of our will and Andy Stanley or Craig Groeschel's programs, we can build the church. Okay, God, I've done all this. Will you bless what I've done here? And we cling to our programs and our promotions and we admire our cleverness and we hope, oh, we hope that God will just bless it. See, Saul was relying on the flesh. But David knows his confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in his strength. It's not in his fighting abilities. It is in God whom he's in covenant with. And he's prepared to go out now in covenant power. And the Scripture says, all those gathered here will know, this David speaking, that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all you into our hands. And He picks up those small stones, and He takes His sling, and He winds that thing up and lets that rock fly. And Goliath falls 
dead. And verse 51 says, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. All of that is covenant language and David's understanding of it. He won that battle because he walked in covenant with God. Let's move over to chapter 18 because there's another example. It's David and Jonathan making covenant with one another. And I want you to watch the implications here. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to read verse 1 to you through, through probably verse 4 or 5. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul, Saul was the king, you remember, Jonathan was Saul's son. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. Look at verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David. Along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. They had just completed steps one through three of the covenant-making process, but we read right over it, and it usually means nothing to us. But the story doesn't end there. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, now it's several years later, and both Saul the king and Jonathan his son, David's great friend, both of them have been killed. And they are survived by Jonathan's disabled five-year-old son named Mephibosheth, who was injured when his nurse tried to smuggle him out of danger after she learned that both Jonathan and Saul had been killed. She decided that she would escape with this little heir to the throne. But apparently she fell. There was an accident of some kind and crushed his feet or his legs. You look at chapter 9, it's many years later. After that accident, that incident. And now David is king. And he begins to think about his covenant partner, Jonathan, who had died years before. Now, I'm going to take a little poetic license here. I'm going to use some sanctified imagination, speculate a little bit to help you see what I think is happening. And let's assume that when David and Jonathan made that covenant with one another, that they did the striking of the hands, the mark on the body, between people making covenants. And perhaps that covenant mark, that scar on his wrist, maybe even with a little dye in it as a tattoo where he could see it easily, maybe that served to remind him frequently of his loss of that friend. And David calls in one of his servants and he says, is there anyone left in the house of Israel, the house of Saul, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Even after all these years, David misses Jonathan, his covenant partner, desperately. This friend that was closer than a brother. Now there was a house servant by the name of Ziba, Z-I-B-A. And he tells the king about this young man named Mephibosheth, who was disabled years before. 
and that he's living off in a place called Lodabar. Now that boy, we're told, had difficulty moving about walking. But David instructs his servants to go find this son of Jonathan. And when they get there to where Mephibosheth is, they tell him what they're there for, and that David the king wants to see him. And Mephibosheth isn't convinced that this meeting is a great idea. He's thinking David probably just wants to kill him because he's the only real heir to the throne. If he goes back to the palace, he'll be walking into the, to the den. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6. He did go. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. You're going to understand this part better when I tell you what step 10 of the covenant-making process is, but just trust me for now. Mephibosheth is saying, here's your servant. He comes before David, assuming that as the only legitimate heir to the dynasty of Saul and Jonathan, he's probably going to be killed. But instead of the wrath of the king that he expects, he finds mercy and a house full of blessing. And you can imagine David looking down at that covenant mark there on his wrist and showing it to Mephibosheth as he reaches out to this terrified son of his best friend. And David says, verse 7, Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Why would David do that? Because he was in covenant with Mephibosheth's father, and everything Jonathan had was his. And everything he had belonged to them. Mephibosheth doesn't understand when David says, you'll eat at my table regularly. Not every once in a while. Not downstairs with the servants. But regularly. And to me, (laughs) that means every meal. Mephibosheth, you're going to sit at my table. Whenever it's time to eat, you're going to be here. But Mephibosheth still didn't understand because he doesn't understand covenant. The Scripture says that he prostrates himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Talk about self-esteem issues. No one had shared covenant theology with Mephibosheth. Now, there is an incredible spiritual application in that historical event that just took place between Mephibosheth and David. You and I are in that story. You're in that story. Because it's a picture of something spectacular. It is, if you will, a parable of who you are and who I am. Look at it this way. In that story, David represents Jesus. And Ziba, the servant, who went to get Mephibosheth, Ziba represents the Holy Spirit. 
and Mephibosheth, whose name means despised one or one who struggles with Baal, Mephibosheth represents you and me. And Lodabar, the place where Mephibosheth lived, it means a dry and parched land, and that's where a lot of us live spiritually. Lodabar was a place of desolation. It was a place of death. It was a place of fear. And literally, the name Lodabar means the land of no word. Capital W. That's basically translated as the land where people had been deprived of the teaching of the covenant. They knew nothing about it. See, David does for Mephibosheth what Jesus does for us. A disabled man living in a lonely place doesn't know the truth of who he is, the son of a covenant partner. So David sends Ziba to get Mephibosheth just as God sends the Holy Spirit to pursue us and bring us to Jesus. Mephibosheth represents us. Jesus looks at the covenant mark where the nails pierced his wrist. And he says, are there any more offspring out there who have not known the benefits of the covenant? I want you to go and invite them to my banquet table and compel them to come. Holy Spirit, I want you to go and get them. I want you to bring them to my home. But like Mephibosheth, our response to God is often mixed. Because we know that we are unworthy and we're emotionally disabled and we're living in a spiritually despised state. So we fall on our face and we basically say, God, don't punish me. And Jesus says, no, you misunderstand. You're not here to be punished. The price has already been paid. I bear the proof of the covenant mark here on my hands. I'm asking you to leave Lodabar behind. You're here to share my banquet table according to the covenant. What's mine is yours. And I think that as we continue to look at this even again next week, you're going to discover phrases a phrase that is perhaps the most awesome aspect of the covenant, and it is that phrase, what's mine is yours. Jesus says it in all sincerity and in all love. What's mine is yours. And what I'm learning is just how far below the level of benefit I tend to live. Jesus says, if it belongs to me, it belongs to you. And the other side of that coin is, Jesus says, if it belongs to you, it belongs to me. So he says, in essence, I can ask you for your time and your talent and your tithe and your relationships. I can ask you for them because they belong to me just as everything I have belongs to 
you. You see, God has given us His riches in Christ Jesus. He never intended for us to be a despised one as Mephibosheth was, living in a land of spiritual desolation. But understanding the covenant and covenant language is very helpful for us as we begin to understand the Christian life because you're part of that covenant. It is a multi-generational covenant. It has stretched for 4,000 years and it reaches you. It was with the nation of Israel and now it is with the spiritual nation of Israel. Those who follow Christ. And for 4,000 years it has been carried on and now you're part of it and my plea to you would be that you not live below the level of covenant. You're a covenant partner with God. The date was February 17th, a number of years ago. I was pastoring my first church, a little church. It was Sunday morning and uh, I had bronchitis. But I didn't have anyone to preach for me, so I went to church. And I had my sermon notes in my Bible and I was ready to go. But I was not in good shape. And we had the worship portion of the service and we had, in those days sung two hymns, had a prayer, sung a hymn, had an offering, had a special, and then I got up to speak knowing I was in trouble. I had just stepped to the pulpit when a lady right back there, about halfway back in that church, stood up. And she said, Pastor, can I say something before you speak? And it was like in my spirit I was saying, oh, please do, and make it long. As she began to speak, she told us about her son who had been born severely handicapped and had spent most of his life in an institution. And she said, he is sick today. He is struggling. He has flu or something such as that. And I'm wondering, Pastor, could I come to the altar and have you anoint me and pray for my son? I said, well, sure, Marguerite, come. And as she was coming, just on a fluke, I said, would anyone else like to come and, and I would anoint you as well? And the altars in that little church filled up with people. And the one who was th thought he was too sick to preach took the anointing oil and went down that row and prayed for each one of those people. And God gave me strength. And as I prayed, the organist came back and started playing. And when those people, I prayed for all of them, they got up and moved back to their seats. But before they could get there, another group of people came and refilled those altars. And I went down the row and prayed for each one of them and anointed them. And the organist continued to play. And when I had finished praying with the last one, they got up and moved back to their seats. It was like it had been orchestrated and the altars filled up for the third time. And I prayed for them and the organ continued to play. And when I'd finished praying with the last one, that group got up and moved back. And the fourth time, I didn't know where these people were coming from. And they filled those altars. And I don't mean just a couple at each altar. I mean they were shoulder to shoulder. And when I finished praying with the last one, they got up and moved back to their seat. And there was such a holy hush on that little sanctuary that no one wanted to move.
And we prayed together and we worshiped together. And when I finally looked back at the clock on the wall, it was after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were used to getting out about 11.45. It was after 2. Not one person had left the sanctuary not to go home, not to go to the restroom, not to get a drink. There was such a holy hush on that place that you were absolutely frightened to leave because you didn't know what you might miss. It is my belief that the God that I'm in partnership with, in covenant with, wants His people to experience that kind of thing far more often than we do. But you see, instead of relying upon our covenant partner, we keep relying upon the things we bring to the table. I'm not saying we don't use those. I'm just asking where is our confidence today? And as we search for a new pastor, where is our confidence? Is it in the resumes that are brought before us? Or is it in God and that He will give us leadership and wisdom as we go through this process? Everything that I have is yours. And everything that you have is mine. That's covenant. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we covered a lot of material today and I understand that we did. And I pray that some pieces of it at least lodged in the hearts and minds of people as they listened. And I pray, Father, that our confidence in you is bolstered, that it is stronger. And I pray that we will hang on to these ideas of living in covenant with You and what that means to us. And I pray, Father, that as we continue this search for a pastor, that You would settle down upon us to the place where we will not be so inclined to look at the outward features, but that we will be focused on what You say to us rather than what we see. Father, I pray Your blessings upon Your people today across this nation and around this world. Draw us up close to You. Brush up against us today. And express Your presence to us, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and give you peace in His covenant. God bless you. this boat of men under the crashing waves 
to step out of my comfort zone into the realm of the unknown where Jesus is and is holding out his hand but the waves are calling out my name and they laugh at me reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed the waves they keep on telling me time and time again You never win But the voice of truth Tells me a different story The voice of truth Says do not be afraid And the voice of truth Says this is for my glory Out of all the voices calling out to me I will choose to Wishing they'd have had the strength to stand But the giant's calling out 